and welcome to our third Q&A. Uh, this week you find me in Copenhagen, lucky me, um, easily my most favourite European city. I'm actually here to talk at the Danish Marketing Conference tomorrow um, and I'm really looking forward to it, not least because uh, there's a team from Oatly here also talking and uh, I'm really interested in that because I think it's one of my favourite brands um, and such a clever piece of branding and, and also marketing strategy as well. Um, sorry, I was chugging my phone over my shoulder. Um, such clever branding. And in fact, I don't think in general we acknowledge enough how good the Scandinavians are at building brands, keeping them relevant, using all the levers of branding. So I'm talking brands like Lego, Volvo, Oatly, H&M Group, Spotify, Heli Hansen, Ikea, of course, and Pandora. So they're very often my go-to when I'm looking for an example of of strong, relevant brand building. So it's great to be here. Look at me, there it is. There's Copenhagen just behind me. Anyway, this week we're going to be covering a bit of general stuff that's come up, a couple of general questions, a highly specific question on supply chain, which I hope I can help on, and then a question on that wonderful module from Professor Alison Fregale, focusing on influence without authority, which only went live this week. So if you do have any questions on that, do pop them in the next Q&A as well, and I can pick them up there. So I'm going to crack straight into this one. I'm going to start with a question from Neil. And what Neil was asking was, I talk about ESG quite a lot through the course, uh, or at least a couple of times I think I do. Um, and what Neil was asking is, do I know any courses where um, you could upskill on ESG strategy? So, uh, so it's about knowledge building, I guess, on ES strategy. Really nice question, actually. I think on balance, actually, a lot of educational and non-educational institutions are scrambling to pull something together on this. So I wouldn't rush at anything because some of it might not just be great quality. And it's a moving target as well. I've heard anecdotally that the Cambridge Masters in Sustainability Leadership is pretty good. So that might be worth checking out. But I feel this is one of those areas that I feel a bit like AI. It's a, it is a moving target and it might be worth waiting instead of going, I'm going to do that course. But actually reading, following, work out where the authoritative voices are on this one. Um, because I think there's a couple of things that are really a strategic level that I'm hearing conversations about that are really difficult to resolve. I've heard the same two issues come up in recent weeks at a leadership level. One is the issue as, as a leader that you have in trying to meet shareholder demands for profit, growth and revenue, and at the same time, deliver against ESG goals, which almost always cost you. And it feels like they're being pulled in two separate directions. The other big issue I'm hearing quite a lot about is the is the issue of scale, that in order to deliver against some ESG goals, particularly around sustainability, it can involve quite a big capex investment. And often that capex is in supply chain. It might be in using less water to produce glass, for example. Now, the benefits of that could benefit multiple businesses and categories, but somebody has to move forward and fund it. And in fact, one CEO I was talking to last week said that they got through it by working with non-competitive businesses across category to fund a scale up of a more sustainable way of producing. So really interesting. But again, it evidenced to me that this is very much a moving target. So I would look for 
really um, credible commentators. On a couple of specifics, London Business School, I know I would say this, but they have a really good Think Ahead series of podcasts and events. There's one about to come up on the road to COP28. And a couple of our key professors, one in finance, Professor Alex Edmonds, and one in sustainability, who I'd recommend following, Yanis uh, Yaanu, I think I pronounced it right, um, are both speaking. So if you can get onto that, that would be really good. I think it's publicly available. So couple of so a couple of thoughts there and i think if anyone else has got anything to add please do jump in and, and put it on the network but thank you for the question neil um second question comes from caroline where what she says is that she's heard it takes 10 years to build a brand uh, but when you're innovating a new brand in a brand-led industry do i have any or do we have any tips on how to keep the business patient as you build the brand and at what stage would you kind of call it quits if it's not working out? Such a great question, such a great question. I'm gonna give the usual annoying answer to this one, which is it does, it depends, um, but it really does depend. I think this issue of how long does it take to build a brand? I don't quite buy the 10 years, to be honest. I think it depends on the category, the product offer, the consumer group that you're working with. And to try to get a, a view on what, what would be reasonable expectations, I would look to see what other brands have achieved in your category, either through a revitalization or maybe from a launch, because it would give you an idea of what it, what kind of timings you're looking at. And that might not always be possible. I think the other really important thing is to make sure that the marketing and the business leadership have a shared definition on what a brand is. I know that sounds really weird, but we don't always. Now, the definition that I always use is that a brand is a product and or a service plus values plus associations. So more meaning than a product. And that we build brands to give us business benefits. Uh, so we have a differentiated meaning which gives beyond just the product, which gives the business the opportunity of sustainable, profitable returns in the form of our ability to hold a price premium our ability to build a portfolio of products or services, our ability to extend across territories, our bargaining power with suppliers and partners, our ability to encourage repeat purchase. So I think it's important that you have a shared understanding of what is a brand, a shared understanding of what would be brand effects and business effects. So you might look for brand metrics that are classic have I managed to build awareness and associations that give me a that that fit with this brand meaning I'm trying to achieve? But at the same time, am I beginning to see the business effect of holding my price or repeat purchase? Now, I think you would want to see both of those or early signs of them within the first 12 months. And the reason I say that is that for startups to get angel and their first series of investment um, investors look, often look for four elements they look for a defensible ip network effects economies of scale and brand now it's great that they're looking for brand but if they're looking for brand in the early stage of a business then there is a view that you would want to see the signs of a brand very early on and the signs of a brand driving that bottom line. So driving those business effects. Um, so I think you wanna see it from the get go. You wanna be able to extract those brand effects from, 
from buying sales as well. Because often when we start a business, we're literally just trying to buy sales, but you'd want to be able to see what the brand is achieving for you as well. So I guess I've given a doubly annoying answer to the question, actually, haven't I? Which is, I don't agree and it depends, but hopefully that's helpful. And again, always interested to hear what other people have to say on this one. Um, The third question comes from Sandra. Um, now, this one is a, is a, is key, actually, because it's also come up a couple of times on the network. And I'm going to reply to those people that put it up on the network. And actually, what I'm going to do is put a written answer to this on the network as well. So I'm going to give a top level answer to it now. And the question on this is, where did the probability numbers from the likelihood of selling cupcakes come from? So what Sandra's saying is the whole approach makes sense. It's like, I get it, but I don't know where the probability number's from. So, so in that case, I can't do the maths. Okay, stick with me on this one. Or if you're not interested, speed on by about two minutes. But if you're interested, stick with me. So Because this has come up a couple of times. Okay, the probability numbers come from the demand curve that GAD shows, and then it's shown again as a table in the lecture notes. But where I think people are wondering about where the actual numbers come from is on slide 31, where what Gad is showing us is how to get the right balance between supply and demand. Now, I'm not gonna go into a huge amount of detail because I will put it in writing, but this is where he picked on the number of 11 and talks about the pros and cons of plus one, selling more than, making more than 11, 12. Now, to make, to sell that extra one, you need to know the demand for exactly 12 or more cupcakes. How do you get to that? Well, the answers are in slide 34. So he gives those probabilities, but it's not clear where they come from. And I'm going to tell you where they come from now. They come from slide 34, but you have to work them out. So in slide 34, the column down the middle tells you the probability of demand equaling exactly each number of cupcakes. And the column on the right is the probability of demand equaling exactly any number or less than the number of cupcakes. So we know we need to sell our 12th cupcake. So to work out the demand, you need to look at the column in the middle and find the total demand for exactly 12 or more. And you you add them up. So you you add up the probabilities for 12 or more than 12, and that comes to 37.5%, the number he gives. The jeopardy is we produce the extra cupcake, but the demand isn't there. So the simple way to find that figure, because anything less than demand for 12 means it can't get sold or it gets sold at that discounted level. So the figure that you need to look at is in the far right column, demand for 11 or less, and that's 62.5%. Okay, hopefully that's clear. I will write it down. Uh, It is... I'm not surprised. I had to really look at this myself when I first saw this lecture to work it out. And again, when I was answering this question. So I don't I'm not surprised that it's um, it's caused a bit of consternation, but hopefully that helps. And I will write it down. Of course, in reality, what's brilliant about this um, module, I think, with Professor Alon is actually the insight he gives us into how supply chain think, what their priorities are. And I think that massive 
the massive importance of us as marketers being aligned with supply chain because things don't move quickly in supply chain. So if we come up with a brilliant example for increasing variety, for example, do supply chain have a share objective with us about variety? What's the impact on that supply chain strategy? For me, that's the real insight into uh, that GAD gives us into supply chain. It's like, how do we work with them better to make sure we can all achieve what we're trying to achieve? But I hope that answers the question on the specific calculation too. And I will write it down and put it in the network as well. Um, another question on supply chain comes from Anna. In this one, she talks about that um, Professor Alon, Alon talks about Best Buy becoming a showroom business, which indeed he does, meaning that consumers go to the store to experience, have a, have a look and then buy from Amazon. And, and what on earth is strategy that you would do that what would be your strategy under those circumstances well what's interesting about this is i looked at best buy's uh fiscal year 2023 annual report and what that shows is they've had quite a nice bounce back from covid or during covid as you'd expect with revenues and profits growing in 2021 and 2022 but in 2023 they're down about 10 percent, and they've got a big restructuring charge in there which suggests they've got a strategic shift going on so that was kind of interesting. Um, and what they're saying is the reason for that is people are spending more money in 2023 on leisure and travel and less on durables. And they see that as still an overflow from the pandemic. Fine. What's the strategy then if you're becoming a showroom business? I think it would need to be multi-pronged to try out lots of different things within Omnichannel, in seeing if, you, if increasing the service experience can make sense can cause kind of sticky sales and maybe expanding what you do. So then I looked for what they're, what they're saying their strategy is from their CEO. And she was saying something similar, actually. So the key points of their strategy are they want to evolve their omni-channel retail model, particularly in did their own digital sales. They're doing another really interesting thing, which is they're going to shift from a one-size-fits-all retail model to having different types of retail model in different geographic areas, depending on the type of consumers. I've seen another retail business do this recently as well. They're also going to try expanding what they do. So they're looking at experimenting with the notion of Best Buy Health. And they're using their early experience with Geek Squad to enable care at home. So it's expanding what they can do, which feels you know, like the right thing to do. And health feels like a great area to do it in as well. And then they're also looking at secondary marketing market opportunities by refurbishing and reselling non-new inventory for new revenue streams. So what I think we're seeing is a, is a multi-pronged strategy to deal with the shifting uh, consumer retail model. So yeah, they're trying to improve their own omni-channel retail model. They're also looking at new business channels. They're also looking at new revenue streams all of which seems really sensible and definitely one to watch, actually. Uh, but I hope that gives um, an answer, Anna, to the question. Really good question as well. Another question on supply chain from Helen, uh, where what she says is, how could you apply these lessons to a SaaS business that is B2B2B? Would the same framework apply? Now, for this one, I did go back to Professor Alon. I looped back to him and he very kindly came back. And I'm basically going to tell you what he said, right? 
So what Professor Alon said is when it is a B2B2B business, one of the key questions you need to ask yourself is who has the better information on demand and who is willing to take the risks of both overstocking and understocking? Is it you or is it the to be the first, the middle business that you sell to? Um, so who has the better information on demand? Who's willing to take the risk? He then points out that, for example, many FMCG businesses use something called vendor managed inventory, where they are the ones that carry the inventory on Walmart's shelf on their balance sheet, which means if things don't sell, it's their loss. And he's saying, in other words, a more complex supply chain adds additional complications, but also opportunities to tailor solutions that match the interests of the different stakeholders. So, but he's saying fundamentally, actually, the supply chain can either be efficient or responsive, and that's going to de depend on the value proposition of uh, the consumer facing firm in the chain. Um, so as always with B2B, it's the same, but more complicated. But I think he gave us some really great insight into how to think about it. So thanks to him and another great question from Helen. Um, now, the final question comes from Emma, and it is about organisational behaviour. And it's another really nice one, which is what Emma says is that while most marketers are more extrovert, I work with someone who is a massive introvert. How can I support them to become more influential? So what Emma is saying is their knowledge is phenomenal and she'd love to see them get more re recognition and how can she help them do that? So for this one, I did go back to Professor Fregale because I thought it probably was one where a really good understanding of psychology was key. And she said a couple of things. Firstly, to give the person very specific instructions. For example, I want you to schedule a meeting with Helen. When you get to Helen's office, smile and say, how was your weekend? And then go on to talk about um, our aligned goals in supply chain. <laughs> so what Alison is saying, when you're trying to coach new behaviors, you need to realize that the person being coached has no idea what they're supposed to do. If you're fundamentally an introvert, you've got no idea what you're supposed to do if someone says, can you just try and be a little bit more outgoing or could you try and be a bit more confident? They don't really know what that means in practice. So what Alison Fregale is saying is be highly specific. Um, of course, brilliant. That was one of those ones where I read it and I was like, yes, of course. Uh, the second thing she says is ask the person what kind of situations make them more comfortable and less comfortable and then help them think about how they can influence in the situations where they are more comfortable. For example, if they're more comfortable one-to-one, -one, then they would need to be proactive in scheduling individual meetings or sit next to the person you want to influence in a big meeting and chat with them privately. So a couple of tips there, Emma from Alison, really good ones as well. So I hope that helps. And if anyone has any more supply chain questions, do put them in for the next Q&A as well. So we are done on our Q&A for this week. Um, this week, things to remember, you've got negotiation coming as our next module, and it is brilliant. You're going to love it. Uh, it's also the penultimate round of the simulation. So for those of you who are kind of really playing that simulation, remember, I would now start thinking seriously about the end goal, which is total shareholder value. For those of you who aren't playing it as kind of to get that goal at the end, 
please do take the opportunity while you've got it to just have a play with the simulation play with some of the decisions it's such a brilliant tool and it's you really learn by doing so even if you're not trying to get that maximized shareholder value please do take the opportunity while you've got it to have a play with the simulation i'm off to have a glue vine have a great uh weekend week and um and i'll see you at the next q a thanks bye Thank you.